Well, brethren, what a joy it is for me to be part of this um, time of fellowship and uh, rich instruction. I have uh, really benefited from all that has thus been said at this conference. And as was said a few minutes ago, what I am doing is simply adding to the body of truth that has already been shared. So I'd like to say a hearty amen to all those messages that emphasized uh, the, the need for us to be men and women of conviction so that our lives and our message tie together in such a way that everybody can see with clarity that we believe in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and he is alone the foundation on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. My role this evening as we continue on the theme of uh, conviction, truth worth dying for, is primarily that of helping us to distinguish between a love of controversy on one hand and faithfulness to the truth on the other. And as has already been mentioned, in a day when everyone has access to the whole world, literally, through social media, nothing has muddied the evangelical waters before a watching world than these never-ending keyboard wars. And I think we all know that. And hence, there is need for us to, to pause for a moment and simply ask the question, when is it right for me to throw my weight into a contentious issue and when is it right for me to hold back? Or put a little differently, where do we draw the line between an unhealthy appetite for controversy and being faithful in safeguarding and upholding the truth as it is in Christ? A look at the example of Paul may help us. And therefore, I want to draw your attention to Galatians and chapter 2. It's been alluded to a few moments ago by uh, a brother, Pastor Tom, here. Uh, but let's, let's come back to this passage of Scripture. And I essentially want to read verse 11 down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll spend our time, first of all, expounding it, and then asking the question, is Paul someone who's combative, or is this someone who is convictional? And I trust that we'll learn a lot from him. Galatians chapter 2, 
and beginning to read with verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pause for a brief word of prayer. Eternal God in heaven, thank you for these words that we have just read. And as in the next few moments we focus on them, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will so minister to us that Christ will be exalted among us. Not just in what we learn, but also in the way in which we engage in controversies which in a fallen world are necessary. Be with us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's no doubt about the fact that Paul's letter to the Galatians is probably his most painful letter. Uh, perhaps it is in the same category of, as, for instance, First Corinthians. Uh, but 
when you read the first chapter, you see that Paul begins this letter with, with guns already blazing. He says there in the first chapter and uh, towards the middle uh, that he, he wants those who are propagating the gospel that he refers to as no real gospel, that he wants them to be accursed. He, he pronounces an anathema on them. Why is that? It's because the province of Galatia was one that was being overtaken by Judaizers, as we already heard in the last session. Individuals who were within the pale of the church, but were essentially claiming that apart from faith in Christ, you also needed to... Um, be circumcised according to the law of Moses. That this was an essential ingredient to salvation. And of course, a number of other uh, parts of the Old Testament law. And so inevitably there was contention that was taking place there. Sadly, quite a number of people had begun to follow that avenue that the Apostle Paul could hardly believe it. In fact, most of you will notice that in chapter 3, just after where we ended our reading, Paul says to them, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I mean, he couldn't believe it. He says, when I was preaching among you, I was like a person who was holding up this huge banner with the words, Christ and him crucified only as the way of salvation. Like a, a person who's playing a one-string banjo, that's all I was saying to you. Trust in this Jesus that you might find in him salvation. What's gotten into you that you should now be adding something else to that which I proclaimed among you? So in many ways, the Apostle Paul was brokenhearted by what was taking place in Galatia. And let's face it, he was also brokenhearted about what was happening in, in Corinth, especially because of the personality clashes that were there in that city. Well, now here is Paul, who is recounting something of uh, the way in which he carried on his ministry. Towards the end of chapter 1, he's primarily arguing about the fact that this wasn't a message that he learned from other people, it was a message that God literally spoke to him about. He says he did not consult any person bearing in mind his own background. It would have made a lot of sense for him to have mingled Judaism into what he was teaching. 
but he got this message directly from God, and therefore he simply went to the leaders of the church because God had revealed to him that he needed to go and put before the leaders of the church what he was preaching. That's what he says, and he says in chapter 2, that was literally 14 years later. It was after a 14-year period of preaching this gospel that he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. Thankfully, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem gave him the right hand of fellowship. And they said, as he shared his testimony, that Peter seems to have been given a ministry among the Jews, and Paul was given something of a ministry among the Gentiles. That's where our text begins. Verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, but there was a problem. And what was that problem? It was a problem that finally so escalated that Paul confronted his fellow apostle, Peter. And he did so publicly. It was obviously a clash of the titans. But it was one that Paul felt was necessary. Let's quickly look into this fact, this brief historical event that we find between verse 11 and verse 14. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that when Peter came to Antioch, Paul confronted him about his hypocrisy. We're not quite sure when this actually took place. I'd like to surmise that it would have been between the planting of the church in Antioch and the Jerusalem council that took place in Acts chapter 15. Why do I think so? Well, by the time you get to Acts chapter 15, this whole issue of um, Judaism and Christianity is presented for a debate within the context of church leadership. They wrestle with it. They listen to Peter. They listen to Paul. James himself overseeing the discussion, finally brings about a conclusion. And with that conclusion, Paul is able to go with um, others back into Antioch and other areas in order to clarify justification by faith only. So Peter was there. James himself was there. The, the church in Jerusalem heard this conclusion. And so it, we would rather be surprised if after that 
individuals would come from James into Antioch, where in fact the debate had taken place, that they should go back there, start teaching exactly what was corrected, and then Peter himself failing to be genuine and transparent and honest about his dealings, and Barnabas also falling into a similar trap. So at least we can agree it was before Acts chapter 15. The exact time, we wouldn't know. But certainly, when Paul shows up in Antioch and Peter is already there, he finds that Peter is being hypocritical. The hypocrisy has to do with the fact that prior to these individuals that came from Jerusalem, from James as he puts it here, Peter gladly had fellowship with the Gentile brethren. He, he had meals together with them that symbolized intimate fellowship with them. Because in those days, having a meal as a Jew with the Gentiles was something that would be seen as wrong, as a breach of trust among Jewish believers. Well, now, when this team arrives, Peter is the first one to, to begin to think, well, look, I'm, I'm going to get into trouble. And therefore, he keeps away from that level of intimacy or fellowship. He withdraws from the Gentiles. And P Paul says here, he does it out of fear. It's out of fear. But in doing so, sadly, a number of other brethren follow his example. They begin to, to keep away from the Gentiles, this uncircumcised Gentiles. Well, before long, even Barnabas falls into the same trap. So here is Paul showing up, and he sees this obvious physical division. He doesn't take it lying down. So this is what he essentially says to him. Halfway through verse 14, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He challenges him. He does so publicly in the hearing of the other believers, who Jewish believers especially, who had begun to act in a way that was not in accord to the gospel. Well, Paul doesn't end there. He now gives us the reasoning behind this confrontation. And the thing that I want you to notice as we begin to look at this reasoning is that Paul 
specifically makes it clear that Peter's behavior was undermining the gospel's clear message of justification by faith only. He was not acting, to borrow Paul's own words here, he was not acting in accordance with the gospel. It was really this issue that Paul was concerned about. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step, there it is, with the truth of the gospel. He confronted Peter. Paul argues this out in two ways. First of all, he uses a rather secular form of argument. Uh, we see this from verse 15 and verse 16. Let me say what he's essentially saying, and then we'll read it, and you will see how simple the text itself is. So first of all, he's saying that we Jews know that no one is justified by observing the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. Those of us who are Christians from a Jewish background, we know this. Number two, and that's the reason why we have believed in Jesus. We know that the law cannot bring us into this living relationship with God. And therefore, we have said to Jesus, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The cross alone. And Paul is saying, coming right back again to point one, and it is this. Therefore, let's face it. No one is justified by observing the law. So it's come right back to point A. We realize this. We went to Christ. Come on. Therefore, we know that this cannot bring us to God. So let me read that, and you will notice that that's what he's really saying. Verse 15 to verse 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. And he goes right back. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So his first line of argument is this truth is essential to the gospel. It's the way in which we've been brought into this relationship with God we know it. His quarrel is, then why are we behaving this way? Why do we want to put on the Gentiles something that we ourselves abandoned? 
because it was impotent. It couldn't help us. His further argument, which isn't very clear in our English uh, version, is primarily simply saying that the ones who are transgressing are not those who are overlooking the law by showing a life that is justified by faith in Christ, that is, through continual fellowship with Gentiles. The ones who are transgressing are those who are going back to erect the dividing wall of hostility. They are the ones who are the true sinners. Let's see this in verse 17 and verse 18. As I said, it, it may sound a little confusing, but the point he is making ultimately is, who are the real sinners here? But if, verse 17, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, that is, we are now not following that same written code. And so, yes, we are breaching the law. Is Christ then a servant of sin? And he says, certainly not. Don't even think that way. Rather, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It's really those who are rebuilding those walls of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Those are the ones who in reality are breaking that which is ultimately God's law. And then notice the way in which he finally separates these two areas by using the phrase live and die, live and die in contrast to each other. That basically this is what has happened. There were two kingdoms and through the gospel we have died to the law and we've been brought alive into this sphere. Whether we are Jew or Gentile, we are done with this through a dying and a living. I want you to notice in the next few verses how these two words just keep popping up. And if you can just appreciate what I've been doing here in front, going like this. <laughs> Dying and living, you won't get lost in this maze. Okay? So, follow me. Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law. So, you can see where my hand is. I died to the law. So that I might live to God. I'm in this sphere through the law. Let's go on. I have been crucified 
with Christ, so I died. It is no longer I who live, but it is now, notice where my hand has gone, it is now Christ who lives in me. There's a brand new life I am living here, and it's the life of Christ in me. Let's go on. And the life I now live, there we are still on this side, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's been a movement from here to here. And then Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God if for if righteousness were through the law, so he's back here, so if this could, be, could happen here, then Christ died for nothing. You are literally nullifying this. That's what you're doing. In other words, this reenactment that you are doing here is undermining the gospel. That's his point. And that's Paul having taken on a dear brother, Peter. It was out of a strong conviction as a man who himself had been extremely zealous for the law. He had said earlier in chapter 1 and verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But now, as we're hearing earlier on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in his experience, the gospel was burned into his being as a conviction. And the moment he noticed an undermining of the gospel, he said, to borrow the phrase of this conference, here is the truth worth dying for. The question I want us to ask is, uh, was Paul merely being combative? Or was it truly convictional when he confronted Peter this way? How can you tell when you see perhaps on social media or you are at a conference or whatever the opportunity might be where, or maybe it's a book you are reading, where one pastor or one preacher or one leader, Christian leader, takes on another. What, what are you going to base your... your analysis on to see whether what you are dealing with there 
is a contentious spirit or whether it is something that's just a, a conviction that this is worth dying for. I want to suggest at least four truths from the life of Paul that will help us to see on which side he really is for. First of all, it is that Paul did not mince words when it came to contentious people. Paul outrightly condemned that kind of life. I want us to see this in at least two verses or two passages, and then we'll come back to Galatians. First of all, it is Titus, rather Timothy, 1 Timothy and chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and then Titus and chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 to verse 5, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, first of all, at the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Those are sharp words that the Apostle Paul is using there as he is instructing Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus. He's making the point there that there are these kinds of people who ultimately have an unhealthy passion with respect to controversy. And in the end, they just muddy the waters for the Christian faith. Titus and chapter 3. Paul puts it this way. Really, it's the whole chapter that I would have used, but let's quickly go to where he specifically addresses it, and that is verse 9 down to verse 11. He says there, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, surely Paul could not be writing this to these two young disciples of his who were really taking over the churches he wouldn't be saying this to them if he was the prime example of that kind of life. He was warning them against such individuals because he was genuinely concerned that that is being 
in a very unhealthy spiritual state when a person is contentious. Or as we read earlier from, well, I don't think we read, but we were told from Galatians 6. So back to Galatians, and this time, sorry, chapter 5, and verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When you allow a spirit of contention to become toxic within the context of the church, the church implodes. And that's it. So Paul warns against this. So what he was doing with Peter was not his way of life. He did not set himself up to be someone who's sniffing around for error and then seeking to destroy anything that is different from his own position. But number two, or maybe before I get there, the point I want to mention here is the fact that often you know the kind of people who are like that. You know them. You know them in your church. You know them in your, their environment. You know them on social media. You can't miss it. There are people who major on minors instead of majoring on those things that are major. In their life, that's almost all that they want to talk about. In their ministry, that seems to be what satisfies them when they have destroyed, I'm using a phrase here, a fly on a friend's head using a 10-pound hammer. <laughs> you get the point. But let's quickly go on. When Paul confronted Peter. The confrontation was initially as notorious as the sin itself was until he finally wrote this particular letter. Now that's important. Paul did not take this issue immediately and spread it everywhere. Otherwise, we may probably have picked it up somewhere. He went to Peter, together with the brethren that were being hypocritical, and he confronted them. The fruit of it is something we are able to see in Acts 15 onwards. Paul and Peter and James were able to resolve this matter amicably and move on. Sadly, with a combative person, that's never the goal. Never. It's as soon as I sniff out something wrong with you, the whole world needs to know about it. 
This guy is finished. Shouldn't even be a Christian leader or something to that effect. Everybody needs to know. That's a contentious spirit. It's a very unhealthy way of dealing with issues. Now granted, if a sin or an error is made very public, you address it there. But often wisdom is, let me talk to the brother. Let me seek to correct him so that he corrects what he has been saying. Because I love him. I love her. I want to begin there. It wasn't until Paul was now writing to the Galatians that he, he wanted to, to finish this issue because what was happening in this province was a matter that, that irked the Apostle Paul to the point where he now wanted to, to just bring everything out and show that this is a matter that he has even addressed at such a high level by confronting even his fellow apostle. But number three, the apostle Paul, on one hand, refused to circumcise Titus. We see this in this same chapter, Galatians 2 and uh, verse 3. To verse 5. Verse 3 to verse 5. He says there, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. It because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? Here it is again. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, when we noticed that going ahead with circumcision was going to compromise the gospel, we dug in our heels. Why? It was a gospel issue. But this same Paul circumcised Timothy. Acts 16 and verse 3. Acts 16 and verse 3. We read there. Paul, Acts 16 verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, Paul, aren't you contradicting yourself here? On one hand, you have said, no way. We're not going down this road. On the other Timothy, let's go. 
We're going down this road. How do you explain this? The answer is quite simple, and it's this, that to Paul, circumcision or non-circumcision was nothing at all. Nothing. So in one case, because it was being demanded as a way to get reconciled to God, Paul says, we won't go there. On the other, because I will be traveling with Timothy, evangelizing in Jewish territory, I don't want to give them an excuse. And therefore, Timothy, let's make you more acceptable to these people among whom we will be evangelizing. So Paul himself puts it this way in back to Galatians, but this time chapter 6. Galatians and chapter 6. Verse 15. He says there, I'll begin from verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. In other words, strictly speaking, for Paul, circumcision was not a hill worth dying on. Unless it was now being demanded among God's people as a way to be reconciled to God. At that point, Paul's back comes out. And he becomes a champion of the faith. And that's exactly what was happening with Peter at this point. So it's not so much circumcision or lack of it, but it's this whole issue of acceptance with God. There's only one way. And I'll come back to that soon as I close. But here's my fourth point, and it is this. How do I know that Paul was not a contentious fellow? Well, it's the fact that there were a number of other issues in the church, Jew and Gentile issues, where he could have easily taken a very strong stance, easily, but instead took the attitude of love the brethren and let each man be persuaded in his own mind. And we see two of them, one in Romans 14, and the other in 1 Corinthians and chapter 8. I commend those passages to you. In fact, for 1 Corinthians, it's all the way from chapter 8 to chapter 11, where he's dealing with food sacrificed to idols. But notice the way in which when you deal with those texts in your own congregation today, you will see how easily the congregation begins to fragment because people begin to take sides 
And even when you are telling them that, look, actually, Paul did not take any side here. He just said, come on. Let it be. They still feel, ah, maybe pastor is compromising. But you're not. All you're doing is being faithful to the way the Apostle Paul handles it. He says, brethren, let's not divide among these issues. Yes, we don't see eye to eye. That's fine. But let's preserve what we're hearing earlier on, the unity of the Spirit. Otherwise, we will have first Gentile Baptist Church on that side of the road and first Jewish Baptist Church on the other side. That's what's going to happen. And that will be sending the wrong signal to the world that Christ is divided. He's not. So, when you look at these four arguments, it soon becomes clear that what we are dealing with in Galatians and chapter 2 between Paul and Peter was an absolute necessity. It was a gospel issue. Now, a previous preacher did a great job at showing us the different levels where we should say, here, I'll put up a gallant fight. Here, let me allow for things and so forth. So I won't go into that. But what I want to do is to say this as I close. That first of all, let us be clear about the gospel. Because once we know what the gospel really is, we will know when the gospel is being undermined. Not everything that is taught in the Bible is the gospel. So let's be very clear about it. The, the aspect of in Christ alone, by faith alone, through the grace of God alone, those aspects we must be jealous about. And when any of those aspects gets compromised, yes, Let's stand up and say, over this, you just have to kill me. Because it's God's only way of saving sinners. Number two, let's also be clear about what our church believes in terms of Christian doctrine. I think the point has been made. Nobody is saying that everything else doesn't matter. Nobody is saying that. Let's be clear. You belong to whatever church you belong to. Study the doctrines of that church. So that as you are in this world, you are part of the witness of that body of God's people. I think most of you will have heard of the individual who was asked the question, uh, what did he believe? And he answered and said, I believe what my church believes. And then he was asked, okay, what does your church believe? And he said, well, my church believes what I believe. <laughs> okay, he, he was asked, fine, what do you 
and your church believe? And his answer was, my church and I, we believe the same thing. <laughs> now that might get you out of a sticky situation, but you are not honoring the Lord. You must know what you stand for as a people of God under your appropriate leaders. Having said that, you need to be clear about what the gospel issues are. And don't end up in a situation where you destroy fellowship over non-gospel issues. Don't do that. Yes, let your life adorn the wider truths of the Christian faith in love, in joy, and in peace. But let's only pay the ultimate price when it's the gospel that is at stake. Other speakers have made the point, and I don't need to belabor it, that there will be areas where we will agree to disagree. And it will be areas where, yes, we treasure some of those doctrines. But the point is, like the Apostle Paul here, let's not end up with blood on our hands over what is a secondary issue. And especially when that becomes your way of life, you become so toxic that even in your very marriage, in your very home, with your children, everybody is now upset. And you still think you are saving Jesus Christ. No. That's definitely not what Paul was doing in Galatians chapter 2. Let's follow something of his example as we see it across his writings. The joy, the love, the peace that should be radiating out of our lives as believers to fellow believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. Thank you that where there was necessity to draw the line in the sand, he did so. May we be like him. But at the same time where there was a wrong spirit altogether. He warned others to avoid that way of life. Father, help us to be like that too. Give us wisdom to know the difference. For the sake of Christ, amen.